I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we'll be in John chapter 17 as we begin a new study this morning uh, called Inevitable, Um, and uh, hopefully the chalkboard uh, and the school reference doesn't, uh, doesn't put you in too bad of a mood. I think we'll have a good time this morning. Uh, But again, we'll be in John 17. We'll read from that chapter in just a little while. But I want to start off by asking a question, which might, since you might consider the most controversial, uh, ill-framed question you've ever heard in church. But hey, at least it'll get your attention, and maybe you'll uh, remember this message, uh, at least uh, for all the wrong reasons. But I I promise if you just work with me, uh, I uh, I think it'll make sense. At first, you're going to be tempted to poke holes uh, in this question, but I promise you I'm not trying to propagate some unorthodox teaching, at least not this time. Uh, I I promise there's a method to this madness. So here's the question. What do you think keeps God up at night? What do you think keeps God up at night? What do you think God lays in his pretty big bed, I guess, uh, thinking about? sleepless about. Now, I know before you push your glasses up and start quoting scripture at me, I I think I know. The Bible says God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He never grows weary, never gets tired. I know there's no darkness in heaven. So that question is just riddled with theological problems. I had a problem even writing the question to make this point. Um, I'm so astute with the scripture sometimes, but uh, I still want you to consider it as in what is God most concerned about What do you think God is most burdened about? And again, I know God doesn't worry. He's sovereign, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have an opinion. Uh, The Bible is full of his opinion. The Bible is his word, of course, more than an opinion. It's truth. So clearly God has an idea. God has a perspective. God has a a thought or two about what he sees here on earth. And, And again, if you can bear with my folly for just a little bit. Suppose that God observes the going-ons here among the children of men, and suppose he reacts with concern or burden or uh, grief. Metaphorically speaking, what do you think keeps him up at night? Now, maybe a question that we should have started off with that won't require any gymnastics or asterisks. What keeps you up at night? Now, we're cooking with gas because we can go all night with this question, can't we? Because all of us have probably a lot of different responses, maybe multiple responses to this question. What keeps us up at night? I mean, what doesn't keep us up at night, right? In some seasons of life, you just can't stop thinking and worrying and being stressed out about things. Now, I I know we usually hear that question in a negative light, but I suppose that depending on the season and situation, it could be spun in a positive way. You know, usually there's this idea that that this question uh, elicits anticipation, evokes some kind of emotion, um, but something that has happened or maybe is going to happen, something that will or could happen. Uh, And I guess all of us remember laying awake at night, looking forward to something that was going to arrive on the other side of dome, uh, whether it was your birthday, a holiday, vacations, a long-awaited appointment or opportunity. So I guess this could be um, a good thing or could be a positive thing. But most of the time, when we think about being a- unable to sleep, when we think about being kept awake at night, we don't really think about a, a certain amount of excitement to look forward to. We think about certain dread or certain anxiety or certain worry that we just know is waiting on the other side of the morning. Now, we've all had those nights where we just can't get our minds clear and we lay awake and we think and we rethink and we overthink again and again and again and on and on and on. And I think we've all had these kind of nights that when we see and hear the question, what keeps us up at night, we don't have to think too long or too hard to arrive at the answer. 
All of us have had a certain season of life where we just couldn't get to sleep because our minds were so full of worry and anxiety. Our minds were racing with what ifs and what might be and what could be. And again, maybe there's been some times where you were looking forward to certain excitement. But for most of us, the question, what keeps us up at night, makes us think of those seasons where we had this certain dread or fear or worry that had come over us. Now, to kind of lighten the mood, uh, while I have plenty of things that often keep me awake these days, when I was a kid, I I used to dread this time of year, August, uh, which should be a really cool month for me. August was always the most dreadful time of the year for me, and and that's because a new school year was around the corner. And I would lay awake at night in July, worrying about laying awake at night in August, worrying about laying awake for school to start. So, I mean, you know, my anxiety, I probably should have talk to someone about all this existential dread now that I think about it. Uh, But I I literally, I would start worrying about school starting in July and then August would get here and I'd worry even worse. And I would just lay awake at night, just dreading that morning when I had to get up too early and uh, had to go to school. Now, nonetheless, I would worry to death about the new school year, but not reasons, not for the reasons you might would expect or think. Um, You know, I I would always dread having to make new friends because I was really bad at that and still am. I would always dread or worry if my teacher would like me or if I would get, you know, just fit in with the the classroom. But probably what I worried under the most, and this might be completely, this might sound tone deaf to you. It might be something that you can uh, relate to. What I worried under the most is is what I call the pressure of a perfectionist. Uh, You you see, I was always a bit of a perfectionist growing up, and some might say I still am, uh, but uh, I I really did well in most of my studies. I, I would worry about coming up to a subject, though, that would frustrate me or cause me to stumble. I would always just dread the new school year because having had a record of of doing really well, I would just know that there was going to be something around the corner that would just not be as easy as the previous year's studies had been. And I knew, I knew that I would be able to work through whatever challenge was on the other side. I knew that I could do it because I'd been told I could. I had been, I'd proven that I could. I'd worked hard to show that I could, but I always would get really stressed out about the process of having to. Does that make sense? I knew I could get through it. I knew it wouldn't be impossible, but I just knew it would not be the most comfortable of situations. I knew that it wouldn't be the most fun, but I knew that something in me wouldn't allow me to give up. Something in me wouldn't allow me to be slack. Something in me said, you've got to do your best because you've already done it before. So maybe that lands with somebody, maybe not with school, but in some field of life. Um, You know you can do it. You don't have a mind, uh, you don't mind having to do it, but the stress and the pressure of having to is just kind of hard to compress and hard to manage. And that's kind of where my mind was every year, this time of year. And, and so every school year, I would get super stressed out about whatever was on the way, whatever new subject, new class was on the way. And, and this eventually followed me to college and it would it actually led to me buying textbooks in June and reading ahead about the subject because I was so worried about getting to the subject and then not being prepared. Um, I actually, I think I took Greek, my Greek classes twice as much because I would read the book beforehand and teach myself the subject and I would get to class that fall and then I would have to relearn it again. But I was so worried about being caught unaware and I did not want to be unprepared to do the best that I felt like I just had to do and I felt like I was expected to do and, and again it, it wasn't that I didn't like doing it it was just that I had this sense of pressure that made me feel like I had to do 
my best. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but I think somebody might can relate to me about this idea of being a perfectionist and this idea of dreading something new, knowing that you can do it, just not knowing if you really wanted to put up with it and, and, and process it all. And maybe this is something you deal with at work, you deal with in your own lives and your family lives, that idea of knowing there's an obstacle, knowing it's possible to overcome, just not knowing if you've got that want to and that desire to kind of get up and, and get over that, that hill. And, and, and when I was a kid, I had this particular concern over whatever new subject or new field of math was around the corner. And I love math. Math was my favorite subject. It was what I wanted to do for a living for a long time and follow into mathematics and physics and stuff. And, uh, and the thing about math, I knew I could do it. There had never been a problem that couldn't be solved. I knew that it was something I could figure out, but I was so stressed out about having to be the best. I was always stressed about having to learn it quicker than anyone else and do it better than anyone else, not because I wanted to brag, but just because I felt like there was no reason for me not to do it as best as it could be done. Now, that brings me to some of the most stressful nights that I can ever remember, the dreaded sleepless nights of fourth grade when long division was just around the corner. I'd heard about it. People in you know, third grade teachers used to talk about how awful long division was and they made people worry about it. And I worried about it all summer. And I finally got to fourth grade and I finally got to that fall. And I don't think anybody sees the phrase long division and gets excited. If you do, we probably should call the paramedics because you're not well. Um, now, I used to get excited about it, but uh, I, I've not been well for a long time. But mathematics, mathematicians, even math enthusiasts that I've used to be a part of, um, nobody likes long division. No one gets excited about long division, especially utilizing it, having to work through it. But for math experts, when you get to fourth grade, you enter the long division phase of the semester and it feels like it lasts for a whole year, couple, multiple years. And, and I remember I went to volunteer at Caroline's classroom a few years ago and she was a fifth grade teacher and they were still having to learn and relearn and re-understand long division. And I sat down at the table with those kids and I was just watching them painfully work through these problems and I was just started sweating because I remember what that was like. Um, and, and I didn't sleep for days after that. Now, they say, as in I say, if you can tackle and perfect long division, you will have a breeze with any form of math that comes next. Negative numbers, irrational numbers, algebra, calculus. If you can get good at long division, there's nothing you can't get good at um, if you work hard at it. Now, long division is meticulous. It's tedious. Uh, it requires careful attention to every detail because mistakes come so easily. And as more and more, as, as it gets more and more complex, don't even get me started with polynomial division and, and algebra and all the different, you know, X's and Y's. That just makes things just really, really frustrating and really, really disgusting, if I'm being honest. Um, but if you can develop the patience to endure the crushing pain of long division, you, I think, you will acquire the skills and the grit to tackle the most gruel, grueling area of math. I really believe that. Now, I think for that reason, fourth and fifth grade is where most decide either I'm a math person or I'm not a math person. I think everybody can kind of stumble along until you get to long division and, you know, adding and subtracting, multiplication's even okay. But it, when you get to long division, you either decide, I love this or I hate this, right? And that just goes with you until you graduate, right? Uh, and long division is a crucible that you either, you know, exit committed for life or you are so banged up and so bruised up up. I hope I don't bring anybody back some bad memories, but you walk out of that crucible and you never want to see numbers again, right? You see the road sign, the speed limit, and you start sweating. That has happened to a lot of people, I'm sure. Now, you know, I really think there's something about division itself that just rubs us the wrong way. 
I think the concept is offensive to our inner being, <laughs> really. Uh, I, I think the reason most don't take to long division or division in general, the whole idea leaves a bad taste in our mouths. The whole concept of dividing just is a bad experience. Now, we love to add. I mean, who doesn't love to add? We learn to add quickly because we want to be able to count the stuff and add more to it. We don't mind subtraction because sometimes you got to get rid of some stuff that you just don't need. And we really love multiplication because we like to see things grow exponentially. But when it comes to dividing, and I mean real life division, when re in real life circumstances, when things start dividing and splitting, we don't like it, do we? Now, just like on paper, division, when it happens in real life, it's messy, it's complicated, and it leaves lingering and leftover effects. Now, the word leftover gets, again, takes me back to fourth grade and learning about leftovers. And then you get to fifth grade and you're told, oh, oh, honey, leftovers aren't a thing anymore. Remainders aren't a thing anymore. You've got decimals and fractions. And then you were lied to for a year, you know, about remainders. You remember doing the things you could just put R and whatever number was there, but then you get told, no, you got to divide that number up and you got to do decimals and fractions. And then you get fake numbers and X's and I's and it just gets so awful to deal with. <laughs> now, Maybe the reason we don't like division is that somehow our psyches and our souls, we just hate real world division. We hate real world, the implications of division. And the mathematic notion of division, it just evokes that strong, uh, that it evokes too strongly, I'm being honest, that real life concept of dividing things up. Because again, real life division is messy, just like it is on paper. It's complicated and it always has these lingering leftover effects and just if I can take you back remember back whenever you were in school and you had problems like this they took up half a page I mean it's just awful I mean why would you do this they have calculators that do this for you I mean don't make children go through this and then you get to these that are even more complicated and they, I don't even have a room on the screen to show all the pages, right? I mean, I hope I don't scare the kids. This is fun. I, I, lo I love doing this stuff, but most people don't, right? I'm not normal. And I know most of y'all, this is just making you think, what is all this about? But I promise there's a reason for this. And then you get to high school and I mean, who in the world? Like, what is that? I mean, why would they even ask you to do that? Right now, for some reason, I promise you, I figured out long division when I was in fourth or fifth grade. When I got to this, I was just like, man, this is fun. Again, most people get to see that and they're thinking, you know, what language is that? I see numbers, but what are those X's doing? Um, again, but like long division on paper, there's that lingering tail, isn't there? There's that leftover stuff. And I mean, what do you do with all that? And how do you make sense of all of that? Now, while it maybe can be managed and maybe things can be repaired, real life division is like those tails on these equations. It's like dragging something with a loose rope and it just kind of hits everything as it follows behind as you're dragging it. It just makes things fly apart and damages everything. Real life division, not the numbers, but real life division, when it hits our families, when it hits our countries, when it hits our communities, when it hits our churches, division is something that nobody likes, it's nobody's friend, yet everyone is acquainted with it, aren't we? And in many cases, we allow division to be our master and we look at the, the problems in the world and we say, there's no solving them, I'm walking away. Now you might could do that in fourth grade and your teacher may come around the corner and say, I'll help you work it out this time. But just like in fourth grade, if you didn't figure out how to work it out, you would be lost in mathematics for the rest of your school tenure, wouldn't you? 
So as, as a people, why have we accepted division as something that isn't just unavoidable, but is something that is in control of our world? And if we're being honest, the prospect of division, the impact of division, the fallout of division will and has kept us all up at night. We've laid awake at night worrying over what something might bring, how divisive it might be. We've worried about how things are definitely going to divide. We've worried about how we're going to pick up the pieces from the division that has fell on our family, our country, our communities, our churches. Now, we're not the only ones who have ever laid awake at night over division or about division. While we affirm that God neither slumbers nor sleeps, nor has he ever worried about anything in his sovereignty, Jesus Christ was God in flesh. And during his earthly ministry, he had a sleepless night 2,000 years ago, his only sleepless night on record. And while he wasn't worried about what might or might not be, he was concerned, he was burdened about one particular subject. The night before Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of the world and kickstart his movement that would save the world, Jesus laid awake. Not worried about what might happen to him, but praying about what might become of his movement, about what might become of us. And would you believe the one thing he was concerned about, the one thing he prayed about, was division. Not the kind you do on paper, but the kind that affects people in real life. So while maybe the question was worded a bit provocatively, the answer to the question, what keeps God up at night, is proven in his own record as having kept him up one night. What kept Jesus up one night, the last night of his life, the potential of division amidst his people. The potential, not even the reality of, the potential of division kept him up on the most important night of preparation in his life. Of all the things that could pose a threat to his movement, of all the things that could stun its growth, of all the things that might do harm to his people individually and collectively, division is the one thing that Jesus considered to be the most dangerous and the most detrimental. I imagine if you polled a dozen Christians from different places and different churches, none of them would say division is the greatest threat to, the Christianity, to Christianity and to the church. And perhaps the reason why there are so many different answers is because of how divided we are. The truth of the matter is, most of or many of the things we point to as being most harmful are the root of or the result of pre-existing division. On two different occasions, we'll look at one of these as our text next week, but on two different occasions, Jesus was frank and forthright with his followers. And he told them they would encounter many stumbling blocks from day to day. And he had a pretty radical solution to them. Now on the screen, I want to show you this one occasion from Matthew 18. I'm using the New American Standard Translation because it really kind of gets it across in a very clear way that I think will lead us into our, our text today. Matthew 18, this is what Jesus said. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the person through whom the stumbling block comes. 
Jesus says, listen, this world is broken and there are many things that trip us up. It is inevitable that these stumbling blocks will come in our way. But woe to the person or persons through whom these stumbling blocks come, as in adding them to the equation. And listen to Jesus, very radical, very extreme. His words, not mine. Solution to if we seem to be the stumbling block. Listen to what he says. If your hand or foot is causing you to sin or causing others to sin because of you, cut it off and throw it away. He's not being literal, is he? Uh, Hopefully not. It is better you to enter life maimed without a foot than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal. I mean, fire's bad enough. Eternal fire. He's not done. If your eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into fiery hell. Now, we're all too familiar with the inevitability of stumbling blocks, aren't we? And sometimes we're the one who are the stumbling blocks, while sometimes they are put in our way because of something or somebody else. Now, I want you to think about it. Stumbling blocks like unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, and hatred... Greed, jealousy, apathy, selfishness, really any kind of sin, internal or external. All the temptations we face, all the sins we could commit, whether an offense to God or ourselves or an offense to both God and our neighbor. Every temptation and every sin causes some kind of division, doesn't it? They all threaten to separate us from each other. They threaten to break down the community of God's people and prevent us from coming together as his people. And again, that that first verse from Matthew 18, Jesus is worried about any one of us being a stumbling block. He's worried about any number of us tripping over another who is a stumbling block. Why is that? Well, down in Matthew 18, verse 20, he says this. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So now we see it coming together. That Jesus' goal is to gather us together. His goal is to bring us together. And if something hinders that, if something frustrates that, if something works against that, it works against this. You see what Jesus is doing here? Unity is essential for God's full presence and power. Therefore, division threatens to undermine and drain his movement. But come on, division doesn't just threaten to do this. It has done this, hasn't it? We've seen it. We've experienced it in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our country, in our churches. We've turned our heads from it. We've suffered because of it. And as a result, unity feels impossible. Division seems unavoidable. In reality, division is inevitable. Division is certain of not the kind that you anticipate, but the kind that you dread. And for many of us, when it comes to church, the dread of division has led to the dominance of division. Just look at the situations and circumstances, scenarios and subjects that divide us. We surrender to division again and again. We even 
support it. We even defend it. The church has accepted and surrendered to the power and pressure of division. In many cases, we feel as if it's not only unbeatable, but it's irreversible. Hello? This is something that has become a reality in our families, in our country, but its chokehold on our churches has been for far too long. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was about to die for the sins of the world and build his church. He prayed in a garden, heavy, laden, and restless. And the words of his prayer are on record in John 17. This text is woefully underplayed. You'd think the last prayer of Jesus here on earth would be held up a little higher, much more a prayer of which we have every word he lifted up. But when you start hearing his words, it's no wonder this chapter is ignored because it hits so close to home. Because this prayer is all about division and we as a people are all about division. This prayer is not about how unavoidable it is, how inevitable it is, unbeatable or irreversible it is, but this prayer is about how detestable it is. How toxic it is, how unacceptable it is, and how it should never be excused or tolerated. Today's world needs this prayer, a world where we've not only accepted division, but in many ways we endorse it and we defend it. In many ways we like it. It's why we love to say it's them, not us. It's why we love to draw lines and build parties and take sides because there's something in us that thinks this is the only way. No wonder this kept Jesus up all night. He knew what we would become. Now we're gonna jump in midstream at verse six. And what comes before this is Jesus and God talking about how he's gonna obey God to give us eternal life, full life, abundant life found in and knowing, found in and by knowing Jesus. And, and something to pay attention to in this prayer, he does not pray for him or her. He prays for them. He prays for the church. He prays for a body. Listen to his words in verse six. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are for you are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, for those, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And here's what Jesus is doing. He is making it very clear that the church is his body and we are his people, protected by him, empowered by him. I mean, when Jesus starts saying, you're mine and I'm yours, we should get excited about that. We should make sure that nothing gets in the way of that. We should go rescue people that are falling out of this. We should rally around this verse. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am in them. I mean, that is awesome. That is what he died for. If we're not living in that and walking in that and joined together in that, we're missing out. And that's encouraging for you. And that's hopefully eye-opening for those that are out there. And we should go tell them that. Because Jesus died for the church to build it, protect it, and strengthen it. But verse 11 
is his big thesis. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, so this is his prayer. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be, what does it say? One, that they may be one as we are. I mean, that's a pretty big thing, pretty big analogy, isn't it? Pretty big connection that Jesus and God are one. They are one God, right? Same person, separate offices, same you know, father, son, and spirit, same God, three persons. They are one. And he says, I pray that the bond of the church be as strong as the bond of the Godhead. Can't get much better than that, can you? Much more unified than that. So his prayer is, Father, make them one just as we are one. Not half as good as we are one. Notice the build up here. He's prepared them for what's ahead, the church, that he might glorify, be glorified by them, that his power might be on them and work through them. And what is all of that contingent on? What does it all hinge on? It all comes down to us being one. And not just in our own little corners, in our own little buildings. This is all across the board. But it starts with us. That they may be one. It comes down to unity. He prays that we might be united. He prays that we might find unity. I wonder why he prays about this on the night before he dies. Of all things for Jesus to pray about, it must be the most important thing, right? I mean, come on. He's praying this hours before he dies. I mean, it must be the most important thing to his movement. Unless it's so crucial to our mission that if we miss it, we miss everything. That's why he's praying it. Everything he's about to die for is set in motion and set in motion will be in vain if we miss this. You think it could be that serious? I do. Jesus did. And he still does. Now here's the thing. There has always been division in the church. Always will be. 1 Corinthians 11, just a few months after Paul started the place. Paul says to the Corinthians, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it. Ask any pastor, he'll say that. I believe it, of course there are divisions. I mean, I'd be surprised if there weren't. But that's not an excuse to ignore it. And in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, Paul doubles down on the body of Christ, understanding what unity is all about, how we are all necessary. No one can say you aren't and no one can say I'm not necessary. <laughs> Has the church gotten over this division issue? Of course not. Think about all that has divided us and think about all that does divide us. Think about what we excuse what we defend of course we're all different we all have different tastes we're all different in our ideals you ever think maybe just maybe though that that is why Jesus felt the need to pray against that divide remember division is inevitable and we must be on guard of our own nature to drift because woe if division comes by us that begs the question, 
How does division come by us? Now, we're tempted to point the finger here. And not just people in the room, people that aren't in the room, people that aren't in this city, people that aren't in the church at all. We're tempted to point the finger at why there is division. In the church, we say, well, the church is divided because people that aren't in the church cause us to be divided. And I know, I know there's so many excuses. There's so many opinions. But the only opinion I can change this morning is my own. The same works for you. So can we make this a little bit personal? Why and how does division come by me? Division is the result of personal or worldly preferences. That's preferences that we adopt based on what the world says. We say, well, they're right. Division is the result of personal or worldly preferences. Taking precedent over Jesus' vision for Christianity and his church. It's my best way of describing how we cause division. It's when we choose our way or somebody else's way over Jesus' way. If you say it that way, then we all kind of contribute to the divisive problem, don't we? Jesus is calling everyone, everything to the stand here. Our politics, our cultural ideas, our personal plans and hopes and dreams. And he's not saying that they all have to go. He's not saying we all have to become homogenized, bland bodies. But he is saying this. We must come together and be willing to be a church and build a church that agrees with what Jesus says more than, that's the key, more than we disagree because of what we think or what we feel. That's the best way I can define what it means to unite. To agree with what Jesus says about us, about them, about God, about his church. To agree with Jesus more than we disagree. Because we're going to disagree with what he says about himself, God, church, other people, ourselves. We are going to disagree. That's normal. That's natural. That's what we are. We're sinful people. We disagree with what God says all the time. But what it means to be united is to agree with God more than we disagree. And eventually, hopefully, all the disagreement will go away. But if we don't emphasize the more than, it will never be put in its place. Do you see that? Unity comes from agreeing with Jesus about what he says, about life, about church, about God, about us, about them, more than we disagree because of how we feel or what we think. Willing to put his will above our will. That is the ticket to unity. Very few people wait in line for this ticket. Jesus says, all are welcome, all are mine, all can be forgiven and shown their place. He says, my kingdom is greater than every other little kingdom. There's no room for any agenda except my agenda. He says, love one another, respect and value one another. Love isn't a passive handshake. Love isn't just tolerating somebody. Love is pursuing someone, engaging with someone, living alongside someone. Do you agree with that more than you disagree? Because we don't always agree, do we? But are you willing to agree with him more than you are willing to disagree or stubborn to disagree? 
I mean, we've got to ask this question because this is a question that I don't think many people ask in church because we don't feel like we can be honest about it, but you could be honest. Do we even want to love unconditionally? I mean, be honest. God already knows what your answer is. Do you even want to love people unconditionally? And to define that, love that isn't willing to leave its comfortable conditions isn't unconditional. So now that we know what unconditional means, do we even want to? I mean, if we're being honest, not all the time. Not much at all. I mean, uh, you know, somebody else said that. I think this is the root of all the division in our churches, isn't it? And beyond our families and our country, we really don't want to love unconditionally. And we don't see church as the epicenter of God's kingdom activity. We see it as a, as a side thing. As a, you know, well, yeah, the country is more important or me, I'm more important, but church is kind of over there. We don't see the church as the end all be all. Come on. Because it would mean that we would have to turn aside from our personal preferences and dreams if that was the case. Yeah, we agree that Jesus is right about what he says, but we don't really care too much about agreeing with him on everything because, you know, that's just going to make me obligated to other people and it's going to make me more about them and not about me and I don't know if I want to be about them. Listen to what Jesus says, verses 15 through 21. I do not pray that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21 is such a big deal. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see what's on the line? You know what he's saying? Their kingdom impact rested in their church unity. And verse 20 says, so does ours. I want to ask you to do something. Beside verse 21, I want you to write or put a sticky note or put some kind of note that says mission critical. Because what does Jesus say? That they may be one As you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they may be one in us, that they agree about what we say more than they disagree. Because, of course, they disagree, but they put all that aside because they see us in the center and they see what's on the line. Church, if we don't take this verse serious, we are saying that we don't take the mission or the kingdom serious. And that might sound harsh, but we just need to be honest. Because God already knows. Our flesh thinks it's impossible to be united. We're all so different. We're all bound to upset each other. Eventually, trying to work along, get along and work with each other is just too messy and it's too complicated. More complicated than division? More messy than what division does? I don't think so. Think about what division has done to our country. 
to your family. Think about what it's done to our churches. Why are there so many? We might not can fix our country. We might not can repair our families, but we can come to our churches from the corners of the world and we have a fresh opportunity every single day to choose unity. But you can't just choose it. You got to pursue it. By choosing to unite with and pursuing unity with one another. It means laying down, laying aside the things that so easily divide us and separate us. The words we say, the things we think that disagree with Jesus. Making the effort to come towards and not walk away. You know what I think countries, uh, what continues to keep God up at night? The idea that his church was meant to be and has become a spectator sport. It was never meant to be that. We were always meant to be united together. We were always responsible for each other and for the same cause, for the same kingdom, for, or, for each other. We were always under this obligation that we may be one. In closing here, verses 20 through 24, all, I want you to hear this together. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what is Jesus getting at? That we would be united so that we might be full of his glory and his power to do his work. Jesus desires that we will be where he is. That is and share the vision. If we are able to share his vision, if we are gonna be able to share his vision, we must unite around his mission. Notice what he says there. He says that the world will never believe that God sent Jesus until they see us united together around and for Jesus. I didn't make that up. It's right there. Verse 21 and verse 23. The world will never believe until they see. You know what, you know, you know what happens? You know what happens when we prioritize God, unity as God's people? we will be more prepared to engage with non-believers. Do you see how this works? When we prioritize unity in the house, we're more prepared to accept and engage and love those who are not like us because we've already gotten used to it. You know why the biggest tension between us and the world is often our differences, but come on. That's the biggest tension in here, isn't it? That's the biggest tension in church, us and everyone. The reason why we've given up out there is because we've disregarded it in our churches. 
But church, if we're taking the words of Jesus seriously, we can't disregard it any longer. Think back to Matthew 18. What did Jesus say when he says, if you're a stumbling block, cut your arm off and your hand off and your leg off and your eyes. I mean, that gets a little bit bloody, doesn't it? And I think there's a better way. I think he shows us the better way here. Instead of removing what's causing us to be a stumbling block, we can solve it by uniting with each other, hand in hand, standing united together on the foundation that Jesus has given with our eyes fixed on him. A better use of our hands and our feet and our eyes, I think. Doesn't hurt as bad. Doesn't that sound like a better way? Haven't we witnessed enough what division has done to our world? Who knows what might happen with us and through us if we choose unity? Church, I truly believe that God's power in us and through us rests on our unity. I don't mean how we feel on Sundays. I mean faith that makes a difference in our lives, opportunities to make a difference in our world. It begins with unity. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, we know where he stands. His words are before us and as clear as ever. Unity requires selflessness, patience, double underline that, and love. And it will always result in a greater love, unexplainable joy, and the power of God in us around us, and through us. I want to leave you with one more, passage, one more verse of Scripture. Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil anointed on the head. The Bible often equates spirit to oil. God's spirit is portrayed as the oil of anointing on someone's head. You know, a cracked vessel cannot contain oil when it's poured in. Only a solid, evenly molded vessel can. God is calling us to come together from our many different starting points and join together around this single place, this single cause. This is his message to every church and for the church that we may be one so that God may be fully known among us and so that we might make him known around us. This is his message to every church of every denomination, of every tradition, of every style, of every generation, that we may be one. Would to God it would translate across bound, uh, from church to church, but it must start inside of every local body. Division is inevitable, it's unavoidable, it's natural, it's impossible to avoid. But with God, all things are possible. Unity is supernatural. His spirit can inspire and will bless. The question is, do we choose it? Are we pursuing it? If we choose Jesus, unity is our only option. And we are without excuse to go any other way. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together around your word this morning. We've heard some of the most important words that Jesus ever spoke, and he didn't preach them, he prayed them. 
He prayed them on the last night of his life. He could not sleep because he had us on his mind. God, I I stand today as just a pastor of one local church. I pray for all of our churches. I pray for every local body of every tradition and every denomination and every background. But Lord, more importantly, I pray for our church this morning. We must choose unity. We must pursue unity. And that begins by choosing others and loving others and deferring to others above ourselves. That, cho- that begins with agreeing with you more than we disagree. And of course, we're going to disagree. But we have to make a decision that we are going to agree with what you say about us, them, and everything else and choose you first and seek you first and seek the well-being and the good of others first. Lord, would you call every one of us from our comfort zones and help us to learn what it means to love unconditionally, what it means to come together and not drift apart? Would you help us as a church to choose unity, pursue unity against the drift that may be inevitable? We trust in the God who can do the impossible. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.